Hi, and welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fall, Executive Editor of Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. And today we are talking about The Batman with writer-director Matt Reeves. Uh, Matt is currently traveling internationally with this film. Uh, he's doing the best he can while sick. He's got COVID. And um, yeah, unfortunately for this interview, the best he could do um, solo in his hotel room was a laptop and Zoom. So the sound, but more specifically sound editing here, is a little less than ideal. I apologize for that. There's some overlapping dialogue when I ask questions that we had to lose. Um, but this is a great conversation, um, and uh, it, Matt's always a great guest because he loves talking about craft and his creative process. And with this film, uh, there's just so much of that to dig into. Matt, when you were last a guest on this podcast, it was almost five years ago, and it was for the last of the uh, Planet of the Apes movies. And, and on the day that we talked, it had been denounced that you were doing this next Batman movie. And uh, I went back and listened to that. And what you had explained when I asked you about it was that you didn't have a story or a premise, but that what you had pitched to Warner Brothers was an approach. And that was that we would experience your Batman story in a more emotional way, in that we would experience the story through his point of view. And that's always a little bit tricky with this character, right? Because he's aloof, he's mysterious, he's, dis he's a little bit more of a distanced hero, uh, superhero than we're used to. And, you know, having now seen it <laughs> five years later, and I think you absolutely delivered on that, but I'm curious... When it came to staring at that blank page and you're dealing with a character with this varied and rich 80-year history, you know, what became the North Star from a story and structure perspective of, of how you were going to get there? Well, you know, it's funny because the North Star really was the North Star from the beginning, even though I had no idea what it was going to be. Meaning, <laughs> I knew that I wanted it to be a subjective story. I wanted it to be a Batman-centric story. I knew it wasn't going to be an origin tale, and yet... I also, the other thing that was key is that I wanted it to be a detective story. And so I think that when you begin this kind of movie, or specifically this movie, it's horrifying because you're like, there have been great movies. This is a character that's been beloved for over 80 years. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. It sounds like creative suicide because you're thinking, well, I've got to come in here and, and, and do something that not only shows my love for the character, which I have, but also shows that there's something to do here that feels like something that is a reason to do another version of the story. And to me, doing the detective side of it, I felt like that was something that we just hadn't seen in the movies to the degree that I, that I wanted to do it with this. But I wanted to also square that with that initial North Star idea, which is that it had to be personal for him. So then early on... I started thinking about the idea that it could be inspired really by the long Halloween, the idea of the serial killer, Batman trying to on the trail of a serial killer in Gotham. I thought, oh, maybe these crimes are all about the corruption of Gotham. And then the idea from the beginning was always going to be, how can I find a, a detective story that he's on that eventually becomes so personal that it isn't just a detective story, but it's something that forces him to have an awakening, forces him to change. So those ideas were very early on. And then that was the guiding. Weirdly, if you know that that's what you're looking for, the pieces that you come across and the things that you're inspired by, they all start to align in that. Now, that process took a very long time. I mean, I did a deep dive of reading every comic book I could get my hands on. I watched four billion noir movies. <laughs> I mean, you know, like Chinatown was really important because I thought, oh, Jake Giddies is kind of Batman in that something happened to him in Chinatown. We're not going to see it. That was his origin tale, if you want to look at it that way. And it's what's made him become an ambulance chaser. He's trying to 
pretend that some part of him doesn't have some moral core. He's kind of turned his back on all of that. And yet, as soon as what happens happens with Evelyn Mulray and Hollis Mulray and that whole thing, he gets inextricably drawn back in. And despite all of his claims of being, you know, sort of morally corrupt and callow and everyone's sort of saying, you know, you're just a, a very slick ambulance chaser, he is compelled to try and uh, save Evelyn Mulray in the end because that is what happened to him and Chinatown brings all that back. So I thought, oh, gosh, if we could do a story that we know as we come in that something's happened to him in the past because everybody knows that about Batman. And then over the course of the story, he's rocked to his core and it starts becoming really, really personal. That, to me, would allow us to do both those things, uh, to do a detective story and a personal story. So that was the thing. And I just read a lot of stuff and just kept a notebook and just mm -hmm. have, just collected details until the story starts to form itself. It's a beautiful piece of screenwriting in that sense that there is the detective story and there's a little bit of all the president's men there too, where it's like the, the layers that was a keep... big. That was a big inspiration. Yeah. I mean, a lot of seventies films were a big inspiration, you know, like certainly Chinatown and in certain ways, taxi driver, which really came by year of, by, by way of year one, um, mm -hmm. because there are references that, that, um, Frank Miller was referring to yep, yep. Uh, in that, but all the president's men, I don't know. There was a certain point where I thought, Oh, well, Gordon and Batman are like Woodward and Bernstein. And, 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 and the Riddler is like the most demented deep throat of all time. And he's kind of like <laughs> talking about how high the corruption goes. And some of that was coming from, look, obviously I love all the president's men. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was, I read the book and I was trying to sort of find a way. That's why, Gil Colson is named Colson, and that's why Mayor Mitchell is Mitchell. So we got Colson and Mitchell. We've got all the. I wanted to feel like I could just marinate myself in everything that seemed like corruption. And obviously, I was somewhat inspired by what was going on at the time, in that there was a sense of corruption in the government that's always there on one, but it seemed very extant. It seemed very, very visible. It wasn't hidden. And so I thought, oh, that made me think of Watergate. And I was like, oh, how can we use this? So yeah, there's lots of inspirations like that. And 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 for sure, All the President's Men was a touchstone. It was a really um, an important part of the of the genesis of the story. Again, you know, one, one more piece to sort of draw on. And returning it to the subjectivity and a little of the Hitchcockian element here too is, is that, you know, part of that can also be a sense of implication as we get drawn into the story. And it's interesting about, you know, as the layers of this corruption are revealed, Batman and to a certain degree the audience have to question you know our <laughs> hero our kind of drive to a certain degree well that was the idea which is to take I mean to me that all comes from Hitchcock which is this mm -hmm. idea that he makes the audience into a voyeur and it implicates them because we all are fascinated with watching and then there's a kind of question about the morality of watching in the way that we are and should we really be doing this and 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 at the same time the other thing that that kind of filmmaking does, which is throughout all of the Hitchcock movies as well, which I came to by way of Scorsese when I was growing up, because I remember I listening to the commentaries on the Criterion editions of Taxi Driver and uh, Raging Bull, and he would talk about the Hitchcock film, The Wrong Man. And I was like, what, what is The Wrong Man? I'd seen, you know, like 
um, rear window, but I hadn't seen the wrong. I remember those. I was like, oh yeah. The old laser discs, right? Exactly. Yeah. Which I watched again and again and again. I mean, I just remember like in, in Taxi Driver, he was talking about like, now this scene, uh, we shot this at the, uh, you know, this is just a 34 frames a second. So just to take a little bit of the edge off. I'm, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm watching a thing and he's telling me the frame rate of how he did this shot. In Taxi Driver. Yeah. This is the greatest thing ever. It's like mm -hmm. he's sitting next to you. So, but anyway, that's kind of how I discovered Hitchcock was weirdly through his kind of, uh, having absorbed that kind of subjective storytelling in a way that did his kind of sort of gothic personal noir and how that led back to the kind of subjective suspense filmmaking of Hitchcock. And for me, the idea was even from the beginning, the audience, like that's why the movie starts with the point of view of looking through the Riddler's glasses. And we are, are right at the beginning, we are voyeurs with this killer and we are connected to him. And I wanted the audience to be implicated in that. Look, when you go to see a Batman movie, there's an expectation and a desire to see him unleash on the criminal element. And this idea that he is saying that he's vengeance yeah. and that the audience would enjoy that the way that they did in the teaser trailer. I wanted a movie that would that be the entry point and, and yet still see him almost as a horror figure so that you weren't looking at in some kind of like just you know, you, you're not meant to just jingoistically kind of cheer that on like, yeah, but there's some mm -hmm. part of you that feels that, right? Because these people are doing things to people that are horrendous and you just want to see people get what's coming to them. But then by the end of the story, the idea is that those tables are turned and you start to go, oh, wait, was that really the right approach? Is that the approach that should be taken, taking the law into your own hands, being vengeance, being born out of that kind of visceral, personal animus? And so that the audience is implicated because, of course, you've enjoyed it. And now you go like, oh, wait, whoa. And, and that was also true in the idea of getting to this detective story that, on the one hand, seems like it's just completely sort of echoing Batman's worldview. Like, he feels the world's corrupt. All of these things happening, you know, like there's a moment where Gordon is talking, you know, that Gordon has lost his partner, his former partner, who was the commissioner. And he's saying, basically, you know, Gordon says, you make it sound like he had it coming. <laughs> and he's like, there's a copy crossed the line. And it's like, wait, where's your empathy, dude? And, <laughs> yeah, and of course, part of you are going, well, yeah, that's true. And then another part is going, well, that was a, that was a human being. And somehow he got caught up in this, you know, it, people can be corrupted and we are imperfect. And then the idea that that would shockingly come to touch on his own family history the interesting thing to me about Batman is that he's a character who's formed by an incident, a trauma that occurs when he's 10. So this idea of trying to make sense of his life by trying to find meaning in going out night after night and revisiting this, it really means that he's kind of kept a sort of idealized image that no human being could stand up to of what his parents were. He's not seeing them as human beings. They are, you know, as I remember, as God, as Rob said to me when we were, we were working, he said, you know, they're like gods to him. I said, totally. That's what, when you're 10, you know, your parents are these larger than life figures. And so the idea that then we would come to see that maybe they weren't everything, not even maybe, they weren't, no one could be everything that they, they were supposed to be. It was meant to make him question the very notion of even why he became Batman. So the idea of implicating the audience, of turning the tables was a key part of it. And that subjectivity is for me the tool to do that. You know, I saw, because you mentioned Rob and kind of the move, kind of going out every night. And I, I saw in another interview um, when, you know, I guess when Ben Affleck left and you could start going a little bit younger with the character. Um, and, you know, he's obviously an actor all of us have been watching because he's been working with great directors. But it was interesting to me that um, Good Time spoke to you in terms of this because, because when I think of Good Time, and I remember talking to the Safties about this too, 
it's the way he moves. There's a movement to him. There's a vulnerability and a and a, a compulsion. And I I'm sure there's a lot of reasons to cast Robert Pattinson in this role. But those are the two: the compulsion and the vulnerability. And yes, you're right. It, it does. It's funny because I don't know. I felt it instinctually the movement you're talking about. But now having worked with Rob, he's such an amazing actor because he can access his emotions in a way that makes you think of you know a kind of method sort of guy, right? But mm-hmm. no, he's not, by the way. That's like, people have these visions of Rob because of the roles he plays that like, oh, so does he walk around all day and he's Batman? I mean, <laughs> in this case, because he had to be in the suit, he was Batman all day. But like, you call cut and then he is Rob. But what's so interesting is when you're, when you say action, he's not Rob. And what's so interesting is that not only does he have incredible access to his emotions and his internal state, but his control over his physical instrument, the way he can control his voice, the way he can control his movement is super precise in a way that I have never quite encountered. Because usually if you have somebody who's that technical, those are technical things, right? Mm -hmm. He has tremendous technical mastery over himself. And then he also has this kind of more instinctual sort of access to himself. To have those two things together is usually not, you usually have somebody who's very emotional, somebody who can really access that stuff, they're not always on their mark, but he could do all of, he could do both of those things at once. And so the movement you're talking about now looking back at the process and, you know, I remember early on when we were trying to figure out how Batman should be in the first crime scene. And we were talking about, and he said, well, I almost feel like he's an apparition, like he's a ghost. And it really affected the way he moved. He moves like a ghost in that scene. And he moves like a ghost through much of the movie. And so, you know, when you talk about movement, it's really specific to Rob that the way he moves, what he the way he pitches and calibrates his voice, which is different in every role that he's been in, they are really a, a big sort of facet of how he achieves characterization. There's a there's a there's a universal aspect of vulnerability though with him, isn't there? Isn't there an element? That's that- what it is, and I think he had an intensity. Mm-hmm that I loved in good time that made him seem like he was out of control. He seemed dangerous. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he seemed, as you said, like he, like he had a, like a compulsion, he was compelled. So it felt like he was yeah. addicted. And I thought, well, that's this version of the character. For me, the whole idea of storytelling is you need to have empathy. And so you see, sometimes you see an actor and they go really out there and then they kind of, because they go out there, they kind of keep you out of the internal state. You're observing them from a distance to go like, wow, that is quite a, Mm-hmm. theatrical show and you know it might be startling in certain ways but to me what's always interesting and the most important thing to me in making a movie is to try to illuminate the internal state to have empathy for the character even when the character's doing something that you would not sympathy like oh yeah you should do that but empathy like oh wow i understand where that's coming from what that character's feeling and why they're doing that at that moment even though i'd like to think i wouldn't do that but part of me wonders if i would and that only comes if you can see a character's vulnerability if you can't see the vulnerability, then they're just this kind of, they become almost like a, like a cipher. You can just see this thing and they're like a hard surface and you can't access them. And that is what Rob has in everything he does is that he's like a chameleon. He's different in so many ways, but he always lets you in. And so, yeah, that was the thing about the Safdie brothers movie, which was so wild was that he had all of that kinetic madness but you could feel the fragility. You could feel his soul. And so that really, I was like, there was no question it had to be him. Thank God he wanted to do it. Don't want to say that there isn't cool gear and there isn't cool stuff, Batman stuff in this movie, but it does also kind of off this. It does feel like maybe Batman isn't 
this is, or, you know, he's a younger Batman. He might, he might not have all the gear yet. He might not have, you know, it's a cool car. I don't want to make it sound like it's a Honda or something like that, but you know, it's a cool car, but it's like, no, no, absolutely. Well, the idea is that he didn't have Lucius Fox. He doesn't have anybody helping him. He's doing all this, like a kind of hobbyist, like a gearhead. He's, he's got kit car kits in his, Mm. in his garage. The idea was to make a Batmobile that looked like you could have built it yourself if you were totally into cars. And so all of that stuff and all of the gear is stuff he's been developing on his own, like kind of obsessive tinkerer. And yeah. so, yeah, he doesn't yet have, you know, I don't think he understands, well, I know he doesn't understand yet, the power of the resource that he has. He's so naive in so many ways that, you know, I think if there were more stories, he would start to understand the power of of the resources that he has in such a way that um, he might not try to do everything on his own. But part of me thinks he's an obsessive, yeah. I can understand that that desire to try to do it on your own. And, you know, sometimes you need help. And so I think, you know, that's what I like, too, is I also felt like and it's funny because it didn't end up making it in. But I, there was a point where I wanted the Batmobile to not work for a second. <laughs> and it, and, it, and it, it didn't, you know, it's just the same way, like, you know, he barely gets out of that wingsuit encounter. And uh, I wanted all of it to be by the skin of his teeth. But, yeah, I think there's definitely room for the gadgetry and all of that stuff uh in future stories if there ever are any i think he might get wise enough to say oh wait you know there might be a a better way to marshal this but what you're seeing here is a guy in the early days who's doing it all on his own he's putting it together on his own that's why you can see the seams on everything you can see the scratches and scrapes that Mm -hmm. that cowl which i talked to glenn and dave about when they were designing the the suit was i wanted to make sure that not only could you see the seams that to understand that he put it together but I wanted it to look like he'd gone out every night for two years. <laughs> yep, so that way it's not, it's not like he's got a new bat suit every night. You're going like, oh, I think he must've gotten into a fight. You know, so there's lots of gouges and scrapes. And correct me if I'm wrong here, because also another element of this is um, he's a great fighter. You know, he's still Batman, but it, but it feels like part of this is also um, you want to feel the punches. You want to feel that this is, there's uh, Batman's always had that appeal of that. Hu- there's a human underneath there, but it's not like, a suit. but this one feels like in the way that you did the fighting and even some of the sound that those punches hurt. We feel those there. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Cause it does feel like you wanted to touch on that a little bit. I mean, I think it was very, um, to me, this idea of him being a human being who has no superpowers and that the closest thing he has to one is that his obsession and his desire to make meaning out of an experience that there'll never be any way to make meaning of really is his his will to endure. And so the idea was not only would he go out there and rail at his past in in the embodiment that he has of the future, they seem present right in front of him. Everybody he's fighting is, he's really trying to exercise that night but that he's also willing to take whatever comes his way. It's like self-flagellation or something. He's taking, he's sort of, this, this is his penance, you know? In that sense, I guess, there's kind of like a raging bull aspect to, to Bruce Wayne, you know? And that mm-hmm. he he's willing to take it. And I wanted to make sure that you could always feel that um, not only the punches that he that he throws, but the ones he receives, so that you feel that this guy is just on this, this mission that just is, doesn't make any sense, you know? He's willing to endure it, but that's his strength. He has, his strength is a kind of mad compulsion to take anything. We were talking about the car and we're always talking a little bit about action here. And I, I think hopefully, by the way, people listen to this podcast usually after they watch it because we get into details and stuff, but there's an element here. Um, everybody's kind of seen that clip of the car going through the fire. 
um, which is which is a nice little which is a nice thing. But the thing is that you don't see until you see the movie, and it's an incredible car chase. Is a sense of even though he's kicking ass in that car and he's chasing Penguin, it's an incredible action scene where you feel mayhem. You feel like a sense of out of control, which is a hard thing because he's also he's also Batman driving the Batmobile chasing down a villain. And yet the way that we're going with the tires and the way you're shooting this, it feels out of your, once again, I don't want to make it seem like he's not a superhero here, but there's, it feels like a mayhem and out of control. It's a beautiful sequence, Matt. I wonder if you could talk about how you approach that. Obviously there's the through the fire and the jump, but even before that. It's interesting. Cause even back to what we were just talking about, the idea of um, him being willing to take it. I think, look, if I look at his character at a psychological level for me, the idea is that he wants to make himself totally invulnerable. And that's why he's willing to take anything and throw himself into madness because he's trying to prove to himself that he's not vulnerable because as a kid, he was so vulnerable. So he's trying to excise all vulnerability. So he's totally out of control. And I didn't want there to be mastery. I wanted him to be seat of his pants. Like, yes, he's trained himself and he's obviously trained himself. He's built this car. He, he obviously can drive. It's got to perform, but he's just on the edge in that sense. He's got an obsessiveness that's like Popeye Doyle and the French connection, right? And I wanted the sequence to feel incredibly, and it is for much of it, incredibly practical, meaning that it's not CG. There are some, there is CG stuff in it. By the way, one of those things is not jumping through fire. We did jump that <laughs> car through the fire, but I wanted to feel that kind of visceral chaos. So I wanted the cameras to be mounted. I wanted everything to be a hard mount as much as it could be. You know, we used a Russian arm for some of this. There's some kind of great kinetic stuff when he's weaving through the trucks and you see the Maserati and you see the Batmobile kind of weaving through a couple of somewhat objective shots, but it's mostly totally subjective and totally hard fixed to a vibrating beast of a car driving through just visceral elements you know just going through the 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 dirt and the rain and the and you can just with the idea being that you're just going to feel like you're sitting on that engine with him and you just feel like the car could come apart at any minute and that he is that it's driven by his obsessive kind of compulsion but it's not and he's just barely in control so it i think it was really the way that we tried to achieve, achieve that was to try to do it the way you would have if you were shooting a movie in that style because now there's so many you know you, you can do so much with with vfx that it, it allows the camera to be quite free and i always find that you don't want that freedom that what you want is you want to shoot it as if everything is done the only way you could do it if you were doing it for real and so even like in the wingsuit when he's jumping my idea for that aesthetically was i know this is an alexa lf and these are anamorphic lenses but like i think people's visual frame of reference for that experience are these these wingsuit um, GoPros. And so we basically did, you know, an Alexa LF GoPro mount and we worked hard <laughs> to figure out that whole thing and how to make that work. And so those angles are all, they're all completely calibrated by the experience of what, if you look at those GoPro um, videos of these people doing those crazy things, um, that all comes from that. And the, the car chase is the same thing. It's like, some of it almost feels like a, like a dash cam mount. And, and certainly the one, you know, I basically went to Rob Alonzo and to Greg and his team and said, I just want to know everywhere we can put a camera and strap it on to the side of this car so that it'll shake, you know, and, and just be visceral and drive through everything and the water will get on the lens and do all that kind of stuff. That was that was kind of very, very important to us. So, so the, the, the foundation of all of it is practical stuff. The, the drivers are doing those, the stunts and 
Um, obviously some stuff we couldn't do. And so there, that's where it gets into CG. But even for those things, we shot something that was physical that then became the, um, the CG sort of inspiration. So they knew what to draw from lighting wise and texture wise so that everything felt like you would look like you were right in it. Right that stuff is always a mix too. Is, uh, is, 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 is people always say, oh, it's practical or it's C, you know, CG. It's always the mix. It's always the mix. And, the, and when people, because I like guess visual effects people sometimes get offended when they hear directors like you talking about, oh, it's practical effects. And the reality is- Oh, no, no, no. I mean- It's that grounded, it's that grounded oh, no, feeling. Yeah. Of course. Here's the thing I want to say. Weta, who I did the Apes films with. Yeah. First of all, I pleaded with Dan Lemon, who mm -hmm. did the Apes films, with me to come and be my VFX super for Batman. And I just, I think he's like the best in the world. I think he's mm -hmm. incredible. And I don't think that they got enough credit for what they did on those eight films, to be honest with you. They didn't, they never wanted to, I mean, honestly, I think that the work that they did in War for the Planet of the Apes, the idea that that is not, was not awarded like every award under the sun, that is honestly a high watermark for that kind of stuff. Absolutely. I know they'll probably it'll probably happen for when they do you know the new avatars yeah, or something because yeah, yeah. it's, it's but let me just say that that war work yeah. is really really extraordinary and Dan is the best there is and so Dan I, I you know he what he did and what in that particular sequence the one we're talking about that's Weta that's my Weta group they're 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 doing that sequence and it wasn't raining in that scene <laughs> and it sure is now. And it wasn't, and there weren't what those trucks are doing. We didn't have those trucks doing those things in yeah. reality. You couldn't do those things. So I am not in any way. Oh, that's what I'm saying. It's a mix, not, always a mix. It's always that practical. Yeah. That practical can give you that grounded feeling that you need as a filmmaker. And then the great VFX people but can come in and do that. The VFX, you know, if you yeah. shoot something practically and the, the work isn't good when you're doing the yeah. extensions or the additions, it shows because you can see yeah. where the real ends and the CG begins. The genius of what Weta did here is. They were so rigorous about what they were doing. It's so funny. And, and I remember this on Apes too. We would shoot something, we would edit it, we put it together, we get all the shots, we'd final them. And then you get, there's some shots that over the time they call them CBB, which means could be better. Yeah, yeah. So you make your, you know, you make the ones that you think could mm -hmm. be better, you put it on the list. And then what a, I have to say, they always get back to them. And so mm -hmm. I'll get some CBBs and I'll be like, oh, that's great. On this sequence, I had a few CBBs and they came back to me. It's like, oh, those are great. But then they gave me, as they did on the Apes films, like another, like, 50 shots. And I was like, what are these? <laughs> these are the ones that we thought were CBB. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they went back and they did all of this stuff. They put rain into all these, they, this, their simulations, all the kind of stuff that they did. They're like, well, we realized it was really cool in this one shot. We figured it out. So we went back and redid them all. Like they were, they're just amazing. So yes, there absolutely are. And, and it is, and, and if you shoot something practical, that gives you the visual foundation that the artist can draw on to say, oh, okay, this is what this looks like through these lenses in this environment with this kind of stuff so that then they're using that as the guiding sort of, you know, that becomes the North Star of what this stuff should look like. And they're geniuses because they pulled that off. They're great. You know, I want to talk about your Gotham and how that fits because that's one of the big things here when you start this world is your Gotham has to reflect this. But there is another aspect. You 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 reunited uh, with uh, Greg Frazier here to do great, great work. And in and, and between your collaborations, you know, Greg, and he's been on this podcast doing this, he's become the evangelical of stagecraft. And so I am very curious because I think this has become your first time working with this, the volume technology. And so two-part question here. One is, is your Gotham, but then also working with stagecraft, how that kind of influenced your process in terms of creating that Gotham? 
Well, Greg and I had been looking to work together again since we did let me in and we and our schedules just never hooked up. And so I just, he's in demand. <laughs> he's in demand. He's just a he's just a brilliant cinematographer. He's yeah. wonderful. And and my experience with him on that movie was so special. And I just I just really wanted to work with him again. And we kept talking about it. And and there were a couple of times where it almost came to fruition. It didn't, but then on this one it did. And he always, throughout the process, even when I was doing other stuff and I'm doing the Apes movies, ever, he would be telling me about there's this volume experience and I think you should come take a look at it. And he was sending me footage and showing me stuff. And, you know, because as you said, he's, he's evangelical about it. But here's the thing. One of the reasons I love working with Greg is that I have a very emotional response to light. And Greg is the same. And so light is super important to him. And one of the things that's really hard in a, in, a, in, a, in a VFX movie is when you're doing blue screen environments, getting the light to be correct in the foreground of what you're shooting for what you're going to later extend, that's, that's next to impossible. And so like, I wanted to do you know, the sunset scene in the movie. And obviously the only way to do it would have been to shoot it at sunset, night after night after night, or to do it in the volume. And Greg was like, look, you want to do this thing up in the tower, I think that that becomes an opportunity to use the volume, which I hadn't done. And I was excited to do it. And he said, and then that will enable us to light it in a way that will feel completely believable. And then James Chinlin, who has worked on every movie of mine since dawn, who's incredibly brilliant. The sets in this movie and the what we achieved to create Gotham in the movie, I just think his work is just astonishingly great. And so to have Greg and James together to try and flesh out and realize that world so it felt like our Gotham, it was a really special experience. And ILM did those sequences and they were, you know, we were trying to use a lot of photographic based stuff that then would be changed. But then there was another stuff that was totally created, like our bridge. And I wanted that Vista to be there. And there was like a shot. I remember when I was saying there was a shot in, um, in In the Mood for Love, there's this shot on the back of this young monk's head at the end of the movie when they go to Angkor Wat. Do you know the movies? Yep, yep. So when Tony Leung is walking through the Angkor Wat ruins to sort of tell his secret into that little hole, there's this beautiful shot of him being watched and you see this head and then you see the, the space out below. And I thought, God, I said to Greg, I said, here's what I want to do. I said, what I want is a shot of Gotham where it's Batman in the foreground that's soft like that. Can we do that with the screens? And he said, oh yeah, totally. And then Dan Lemon, again, said, yeah, well, that will be a CG shot, but it will be lit on the screens. And then it will, you'll have that shot in the screens, but then ILM will take it because you can't actually shoot the screens in and be focused on the screens and have it be a finished shot. What happens is that then becomes the basis for the shot, but then it becomes, it's lit perfectly. So that dream of that shot was one of those, that was part of this whole thing. I was like, going, wait, can I do that kind of shot? Can we shoot can we shoot a Gotham that doesn't exist by being out of focus on Batman's head, but focused on the city at sunset? And then can I shoot this whole scene at sunset? And that was what that process was like. You know, I mean, the set was much smaller than it looks. So like, not only can you do environments, but you can actually extend the environment. So James built the set in reality. It was a small footprint, but he actually built it in 3D in much larger so that you're when you're looking back and they're coming off the, ele the elevator and Gordon walks when Jeffrey comes oh. across, what you're seeing actually in the background of the rest of that set, it's not there. So it was really, it was an extraordinary experience. And I think really special for the actors because you're not only to me, the most important thing is that it has that authenticity of light. There's some, you just can't create that. All that sort of sunset stuff where you're going like, you know, I remember showing to people who had no idea how we did it. And they're going, wow, you shot that stuff at sunset. Huh? I'm like, what would I do? 
do that. That we took us three days to shoot that scene, and that's a long <laughs> dialogue scene. And it's probably that light probably exists that way for about 15 minutes a night. We would have been in trouble, but it it allows you to do things that you otherwise couldn't do. That I think give you know create the that's the whole idea. You're always trying to create this illusion of reality of your reality, and so I I love that, and it was a really special experience, and it was neat too because Greg had used it in a very different kind of way. He'd used yeah. it on the surfaces of planets where you had you know extensions where the extension itself was they had some set extension but it was a lot of kind of like vistas that were sort of like you know like let's say a desert scape or something like that it's sort of like a low sun just before the sun goes down or comes up or that kind of stuff or right after twilight and here we were looking out at the city and and it had not been done ilm had not used it to create a cityscape around your actors in a way that was meant to be totally photo real. That was what we were doing to try and push the limits of what had been done. And it was, it was super exciting. All right. Last one, cause we do need to wrap up. Emily's saying we've got to, we've got to finish up here. Want to talk a little bit about where this film goes. And I saved this one for the end with the, with the Riddler character. And the thing that I, I don't know if this is a reference or not, but where this film goes, I instantly thought of Kevin Spacey and seven, and I'm in that car and here's he's got he's chained up and it's like anything could happen while they're driving in that desert. I felt like the, if the world opened up and they all fell in, I felt like that was going to happen. And it feels to me to a certain degree that what you did with Paul and that character and the structure, even just the way he appears, it feels like that ultimate sense of mayhem and this could all fall apart. It, it, it feels like it was kind of baked into every aspect the casting the costume the scripting as it relates to that riddler character yeah i mean i wanted them to be mirror images of each other i wanted you know i, I was trying to figure out because i was trying to figure out okay so if you were really going to do this when i was thinking of that kind of year one approach and you're seeing the idea that he can't go out and look for crime dressed as batman because then he'd be looking like batman and people go like hey there's batman and he couldn't be driving around in a batmobile because then people were like, hey, that's Batman. So he needed to be this drifter figure. And then I started thinking, okay, so then the idea of wearing a costume is to intimidate and to be anonymous. It's to, right, that's the whole point. And that made me think of the Zodiac. And I was looking at the drawings, you know, that everybody's seen of the primitive costume. And I thought, oh, this is like the darkest sort of rogues gallery character, like some, it's so demented. And in fact, in doing reading about it, to some degree, it seems like the Zodiac may have even been inspired by comics at some point. Mm -hmm. um, and so this idea of, and he, he's got an emblem on his chest, like it is what we think of as a superhero or at least an anti, you know, like a rogues gallery character. It's very upsetting. But I thought, wow, that's real. That actually happened. And it was this crude costume. So the idea of having the costume be that crude came from the idea that, that that's actually something that people do and have done. I mean, even the idea of like terrorists and execution hoods and all that kind of stuff, you know, I thought about all that stuff and thought, okay, so what could we do so that this guy who doesn't have Bruce's resources is creating his own costume and going to army surplus. And, you know, that is a winter combat mask and the jacket he's got, he could get all that stuff from a, um, from an army surplus store. And so he is this interesting mirror image of, of Bruce who has all these resources to build all this and do all this stuff himself. And here's this guy who on a budget does mm -hmm. the same. And the two of them are haunting echoes of each other in my mind, because they're both working from a place of vengeance. And so this comparison, this kind of inexorable pull to each other that will end up for me, the sweep of the movie begins with the idea of Batman declaring himself 
vengeance in a way that the audience, I think, is chilled by, but also enjoys at the beginning. And he erupts into violence. And then at the end, to see that that violence that the Riddler-inspired minion, I don't know what you want to call him, but the Riddler-inspired okay. character, when he says, I'm vengeance, that's the idea that, that Batman Bruce has been resisting the entire film, was this idea that somehow the message he's projecting into the city is the wrong one. And so this idea of this pull to violence, that it's not just the Riddler's pull to violence, but that Batman has a pull to violence. He's looking for vengeance. And so there needed to be something dangerous in their communication. They needed to be the idea that you start by looking through the Riddler's binoculars, but then later you're looking through the Drifter and Bruce's binoculars, and that there's this kind of um, thematic dialogue that those characters are in, with the idea being that at the end, you get to a place where you could see that something has been opened up here where anything could happen. And it's it's the idea of this thing being out of control. And so that was part of the conception. And it for sure came from this idea of this Riddler being rooted in, some, in a dark idea of what we're capable of as, as human beings and how Batman, in his own way, is coming very close to that, even though there's another part of him trying to do the right thing so that it's an internal struggle. And so I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question. But oh, that is right. we could talk about for Abby. It's just, and Dano is amazing. The whole thing. He's so, so great. Yeah. And it's just, it, it, some of this, the art of casting in this movie is just. Oh, I agree too. with you. I think it's, our cast is so, I'm so, yeah. I'm so fortunate that we got all the wonderful actors that we got. They were great. Matt, this is an incredible movie. I honestly have a laundry list of other things. I would even talk about Michael Giacchino's work here. I mean, it's just, I mean, I was blown away. I was blown away. And I, I'm just congratulations. And I hope you feel better. And uh, thank you for making time on this. Um, My pleasure. Good talking to you. Take again. care, Matt. Thank you. Yeah, you too. 